We've got a long one today. Warren's got quite a task before him. So we're going to read 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 53. In your pew Bible, it starts on page 287. Um, If you have the kids following Jesus Bible, it begins on page 357. And yes, it will go on to the next page. (laughs) Let me invite you to turn with us there. It's in the, the large print worship guides as well. Reading of God's word this morning comes from 1 Kings 8, 10 through 53. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of Yahweh, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. Then Solomon said, Yahweh, he said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, While the assembly of Israel stood, and he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over all people of Israel. Now it was in his heart of David that my father to build a house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Yahweh said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now Yahweh was filled, fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel, as Yahweh pro- promised. And I have built the house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which the covenant of Yahweh that he made for our fathers with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled this day. Now, therefore, O Yahweh, God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if you only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. You have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Yahweh my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, Then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants 
condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave your fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them good, the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward your house. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of, of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to Yahweh toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of their enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their hearts in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of the captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who carried them captive, and pray to, to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer, and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on you, for they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt. From the midst of the iron furnace, let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among your peoples, all the peoples of the earth, to be your heritage. And you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well done, Warren. Well done. If you have a little ones first grade and under who'd like to go over for children's worship, 
They can line up with Miss Brittany and our staff as uh, they walk across the way for children's worship. The Bible, from beginning to end, tells one unified story. Even though it was written over more than 1,300 years and by more than 40 human authors, it still tells one united story. And what is that story? It's the story of God saving and restoring humanity from the mess that we have made of things through our sin. And as you read that story, while humanity in the story seems to be getting worse and worse and worse, God's story, God's mission, God's plan is unimpeded. His story, uh, his work of saving humanity from their sin continues to progress. And so last week, as we began chewing on this chapter in 1 Kings, I argued that the Bible ultimately tells a story, not of things getting worse and worse and worse, but of things actually getting better and better. Now, when you look at the whole of the Bible, you can trace different narrative threads, kind of different subplots in the Bible. And one that we examined last week concerned God's desire to live with humanity again. So God created humanity to live with us so that he would know us and be known by us so that we would trust him, love him, serve him, to to have a sense of, of connection and intimacy and purpose and peace with God But when humanity sinned and could no longer safely live in God's presence, what then? Did God just throw up his hands and say, well, it was a good shot? No. That is when God's saving work, his plan of reconciliation with humanity began. So how did that plot play out? As we followed his desire to live with humanity again, how did that plot play out last week as we read it through kind of the whole of Scripture? We saw that story of God's desire to live with humanity again, unfolding with different signs, different symbols, different types of the greater reconciliation to come. We started by looking at the burning bush. God's holy presence shows up. And who does he show up to? A murderer on the run. God's desire to be near humanity led him to meet Moses there in the wilderness. He sends Moses to save his people. And after Israel is saved from Egypt, what happens then? Before they even get to Mount Sinai, the place where God will descend and give them the law, God shows up again in the pillar of fire and in the pillar of cloud. He says, I'm going to lead you through the wilderness. It's it's almost like God just couldn't keep himself away. They get to Sinai. That same fiery, cloudy presence of God descends on the top of the mountain. And God gives Israel the law. And in the law, he says, build a tabernacle, a tent where I'm going to live. So they build a tabernacle. What happens? God shows up again when it's completed. God's fiery, cloudy presence fills the tabernacle. And it's so great that the priests have to flee from the tabernacle. The story continues. God gives them their land. And he instructs them to build a temple. And what happens when the temple is completed? We see it right here in our text. Look, chapter 8. Verses 10 and 11. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. It's the same presence of God that has shown up in the the burning bush, that has shown up in the pillar of cloud and fire, that has showed up on Sinai, that has showed up in the tabernacle. 
Later, the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians, 586 B.C. What happens then? Israel rebuilds the temple, but does God's glory cloud fill that temple? No. So it's a gig up. Is God done with his people? Israel is left waiting, longing for God to come back. And he does. But not in the fire. Not in the smoke. He shows up in the person of Jesus Christ. God made approachable. God in a much less terrifying form. We could look into his face and know his character and feel his love But then he leaves after his death and resurrection. But God's not done. God is bent. He he is so desirous of living with people. What does he do? He sends his Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, what are the signs that they see? A wind enters the room and, and, and flames of fire appear above people's heads. Once again, this fiery, cloudy presence of God showing up the same presence of God that was in the burning bush, in the pillars, in the tabernacle, in the temple, shows up and fills the church on the day of Pentecost. And we ended last week with a prophecy of something yet to be. One day, when God's glorious presence is going to fill all creation, and there will be no separation between humanity and God, and he will reverse and restore all the brokenness in our world. So in that narrative thread, we saw God's desire to live with humanity, to be reconciled to us, really for us to be reconciled to him. But it leaves us with a question. If God is absolutely determined to live with people and among people, how should that impact our view of ourselves and of our world? Like, if this is where the story is headed, if this is who God is, if this is what God has been doing all this time and what he is still doing, shouldn't that affect the way we look at ourselves, the way that we look at other people, and the way we look at the world? I think so. Because of how the Bible's story progresses, we should be living and leading with hope. Hope. So let's think back to last week. Last week, all the symbols, signs, and types of God with us tell us something about his character and his intentions. It tells us something about who he is, his character, and it tells us something about what he has done, is doing, and will do. We're not going to look at all those signs today. We're going to zoom in because we're going through a sermon series on 1 Kings. We're going to zoom in on the temple of Solomon, and we're going to see what that moment When the the Holy Spirit of God fills the the, the temple, we're going to see what it tells us about God's character and his intention. So, when that happens, Solomon goes in he begins to pray before the altar, before God, before all the people. And in his prayer, really long prayer, we hear Solomon coming to terms with the reality of what's just happened. This is not like normal like for God to show up with fire and cloud. This is something that happens very rarely in the scriptures, this powerful, remarkable thing. And we see Solomon kind of unpacking this and chewing on this as he prays. His prayer reveals to us something about God's character and God's intention. So let's look at his prayer. Verse 22 through 24, and then we'll jump down to verse 27. Then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh 
in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You've kept your servant, uh, you kept with your servant, David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand, you fulfilled it this day. Verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. So Solomon thanks God for keeping his promise to his father, for being faithful. He has this reality check in verse 27. Wait a second, Solomon seems to say. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. You made all these things. How much less this little house that I have built. What's Solomon saying? When God's presence entered the temple, the priests had to run out. They were overwhelmed by his glory. They couldn't stand to be in his presence. It was too great. But then Solomon says, that's not the half of it. The little glimpse of glory that we saw in this extraordinary, miraculous moment. This is just the tip of the iceberg of who God is and of how magnificent and glorious he is. He's bigger than all creation. His glory is greater than we can imagine. When God showed up in the temple, it helped Solomon see how glorious God was. That little taste that he got showed him that God was so much bigger and greater than that. You know, Moses, when he was standing before the burning bush, what did he do? He took off his sandals because he realized that he was standing on holy ground. When Yahweh descended on the mountain, the people trembled with fear because of the power and glory and magnitude of God. And so also Solomon, when God shows up, he realizes how remarkable this is, how huge and magnificent and beautiful and terrifying this notion is that God has stepped down into our creation. Because what do the scriptures teach time and time again? That Yahweh God is the most beautiful, powerful, majestic, and holy being or thing in all existence. In fact, Anselm of Canterbury would tell us that Yahweh God is far greater than the most glorious thing that we can imagine. If you think of the most glorious thing you could ever envision, Yahweh God is way greater than that thing. So as Solomon observed God entering the temple, he realized that God was way more glorious than what he was seeing. And that is God's nature. He's holy. He is glorious. But what flows from that? What flows from his glorious nature? But love. And so God showing up in the temple showed us more than his glorious character. It also showed us his intentions. And God intended to do this, to live with humanity once again. Let's look again at verses 15 and 16. And he said, Solomon speaking here, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. 
But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Yahweh said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did it well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. We see this language of name, 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 name coming up over and over and over again. What does that mean? God's name, a house for God's name. Well, what's in a name? Like if you've got a a good name among your neighbors or a bad name among your neighbors, what's it talking about? Kids won't know. I heard somebody say reputation. Thank you. Yes, that's right. It's your reputation. A name is someone's reputation. Dare I say their glory or their lack thereof. God chose to live among Israel so that his name, his glory, would shine in their midst so that people would know who he was and what he was like. So when a glorious God takes up residence, says, I'm going to live in this place among these people, here's the assumption. It should make a difference. It should make a difference. It should be visible, observable. Something could be known about God because he chooses to live in that place. So Solomon sees the glory cloud of God showing up. He sees the priest flowing from it and says, that tells me something about this God. That tells me something about who he is. But why? Why does God care what people think about him? Why does God want people to know who he is? It's because Israel was not enough. He didn't want one group. He wanted everybody. He wanted all the world to know how good and beautiful and loving and holy he is and to know him and to live in relationship with him. Look at verse 41. So Solomon kind of goes through all these different prayers about God being here in the temple. And this is one that really grips me. Verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who's not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake. They hear of who you are and they come. That was what the next verse says. 42, for they shall hear of your great name and of your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Now verse 59. Let these words of mine with which I pleaded before Yahweh be near to Yahweh our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that Yahweh is God, there is no other. Why did God take up residence in this place? What was his intention? God lived among Israel with this intent to draw all nations to his glory shining through Israel. This was undeniable to Solomon. God shows up, he sees something, and he realizes why is God going to show his glory in our midst in this way? It's so that everyone would know how glorious and good God is. The God who is glorious desires to live not only among Israel, but among the people of the whole world. And by shining his glory in Israel, all nations were to be drawn toward him so that they might live with him. But why? To what ends does God do this? God intends to live with humanity that he might rule over them without rival. 
So, what this means is the temple is not God's clubhouse where you just come by and visit for a while whenever you want it. No, this was his temple. The temple of the God above all gods. The one God. The one who reigns on high. So you come here, why? To worship him and to pay allegiance to him. God intends to rule over us. But why? While Yahweh God has the right of absolute lordship over all creation because he made everything, he does not exercise his sovereignty ruthlessly like evil men. God's intent to rule over humanity isn't born from the heart of an angry despot. We shouldn't envision God like some heavenly Stalin who intends to crush our spirits into servitude. He isn't a demigod villain from a Marvel movie who is satiated only by power. He's a father whose heart breaks for his children, who wants what is best for his children, so he invites them to trust him and to follow his lead. He is a shepherd who wants his sheep to be healthy and content, so he puts boundaries on the pasture. God wants to live with us so that he can empower us to live our lives as it was intended to be. And as Solomon recognizes this, he's overwhelmed. By the steadfast love of God. Look at verses 57, 58. Yahweh our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him. That he may woo us to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules which he commanded our fathers. God is not a despot. He's a good dad. And therefore, he draws near. He speaks truth. And he woos our hearts toward living lives of wholeness. God is glorious, and this is his intent. To live among people so that we might learn from him how to live life as it was intended to be lived. And this leads to the third intent that I see in this text. God intends forgive our sins, and to make us holy. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but it's kind of funny. When Moses stands before the burning bush, he realizes God's presence is there, and that the bush, God's presence in the bush, has made the dirt holy. That's what ground is, right? It's dirt. So he had to take off his sandals so that his sandals didn't sully the dirt. Kind of weird, right? But that's what God's holy presence does. He either incinerates what is in his presence or he purifies it and he makes it holy. Solomon realizes this as God is filling his temple. Look at verse 30 and then we'll jump down to verse 33. Verse 30. Listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear... Forgive. Verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven. And forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, 
when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you've given to your people as an inheritance. If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. I don't think that Solomon's prayers here are like bargaining with God. Like he's just begging God, please, when we, when we pray to this temple, forgive us. No, his prayer is born out of knowing who God is. He knows God's story. He knows God's name. And so he prays these things in light of who God is. And so we're hearing here a convicted man knowing that when any of his people turn toward his temple and pray, what's God going to do? He's going to forgive them. He's going to restore them. If we are going to live with God, we have to have our sins forgiven. And the story told in the Bible over and over and over, this a whole other little narrative subplot we could be following, is that God, time and time and time again, has always provided a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be forgiven and live with God. And all of those signs and symbols and types, what do they point forward to? They point forward to the cross of Christ. How can we live with God? How can we be forgiven and made holy? It is only through Jesus It is through his life of obedience, through his death on the cross and his resurrection that we are able to live in God's presence without fear, but instead with joy and hope. That's God's intent. That's what's communicated when he fills the temple. He wants to live with us. Why? To rule over us, to give us the life we were made for, to forgive our sins and to make us holy. But fourth, he intends to do this, to open the lines of communication between us and God. We hear this over and over and over again in this chapter. When they pray, here. When they pray, here. Question, though. Does God hear the prayers of every single person on the planet? Of course. God hears everything. God knows everything because he's God. That's not what I'm getting at. Whose prayers does he listen to? Whose prayers is God bound to answer by his own love. This text seems to give a resoundingly clear answer. Look at verses 27 through 30. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this house that I built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Yahweh, my God, listening to the, prayer, the, the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to this prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So God hears everyone's prayers. But what this is telling us is that God listens to the prayers of his people. Have your eyes fixed on this house and those who pray to this house. Hear them, Lord. Why that house? What happened in that place? 
People came to know God, to worship God, to pay allegiance to God. And how could that be done? Through the sacrifices offered in that place. So the people whose sins have been forgiven because they trust God, these are people whom God so desires to listen to them, to their every cry, to their every concern. Let me illustrate. If I'm out at the Coke Hill Splash Pad later this afternoon, there's like 30 kids out there. I hear all of them. Trust me, I hear all of them. I'm aware of them all. I even care about them. And so if I see any kid on that splash pad that gets hurt or gets in trouble, my compassion goes out to them and I react. Sometimes I react in ways that would be considered socially inappropriate. I have to to restrain myself sometimes because I love little kids, right? But when my kid cries out, I don't just hear it in passing. I listen. I attend to them. And if I were to see one of your kids, because y'all are part of my family, I can promise you I'd do the same thing without hesitation. Because they're in my family. They're my kids. To whom does God listen? To whom does God attend? To whom is his ear always bent? His family the people he lives with, the ones whom he has purchased out of the world with the blood of his own son. Solomon sees this in the sign of the temple. It wasn't some like magical formula. You pray in this direction toward this building. No, if you trust this God whose name dwells there, if you trust this God who gave a sacrifice for your sins, then he will always hear you and always respond. And what that means when you take it all in context, all the talking about the foreigners and this sort of thing, any human being, if you come to God in faith because of the work of Jesus Christ, God will listen to you and he will respond. This is his intention to live among humanity, to rule over us and give us the life we were made for, to forgive us and purify us and to listen to us. And when you put it all together, what's the, the, the picture that emerges from 1 Kings chapter 8? What is God's intent? If his character is glorious, what is his intention among us? The temple was, the one, was one signpost among many pointing to the reunion of glorious God and humanity through a perfect sacrifice. This should cause us to hope differently. If throughout history, God has been working progressively to show his glory through signs, symbols, and types, and his desire to dwell among his people, if he's always been doing that, what should we expect him to do in the future? The same thing. To keep doing the exact same things. To continue drawing people to himself, that they may know him and be known by him, that he would make them holy, that he would listen to them. This is the story through the whole book. So what should we expect today? What Solomon saw about God's character and intentions of the temple, we should expect to be coming to bear in the church, in our church, and in you. Wait, why is the church being brought into this? The same spirit that filled the temple and impressed these things upon Solomon, the same spirit, Acts 2 tells us, lives in the people of God. So individual Christians are dwelling places of God. Local worshiping communities 
are temples of God. We together as the church are the dwelling place, the temple of God. So all these things that Solomon could see in the temple should be true of us. And that means hope, believe it or not. Because of how the Bible story progresses, we should live and lead with hope. So consider it. These truths about the temple should change what you expect from any person or community filled with God's spirit. Now, I know we have a lot of people visiting today. Uh, When I say filled with the spirit, I don't mean some kind of special secondary thing that happens like after you become a Christian. If If you believe Jesus is Lord, king of everybody in your life, you have the Holy Spirit. Nobody says that if the Holy Spirit doesn't live in them, okay? So that's what I'm talking about. If you're a Christian, this idea of God's desire to, to live among us, to transform us, all the things we've been talking about, this should change our expectations for any person who professes to be a Christian. So if you're a member of a church, you should expect something different from your church. If you're a Christian, you should expect something different from other churches. Why? Because these are places where the Holy Spirit lives. And when he showed up to Solomon, it was glory and hope and offering to the whole world, come and know God. When the Holy Spirit filled the temple, he did stuff. God's glory was visible to Solomon. God's intentions were visible to Solomon. And the same should be true of anyone whom the Holy Spirit inhabits today. So what should we expect? From Christians. What should we expect from spirit-filled communities, from churches? First, we should expect that they would live in a state of humility and freedom that comes from having your sins forgiven. If God lives with you, that means only one thing. He doesn't hold your sins against you anymore. And that should have two immediate effects on you. And the first one is humility. Every, every one of us, if, we're being, if we are self-aware... Every one of us knows that we're selfish and that we have impure intentions in the deepest recesses of our hearts. If God can forgive that because of what Jesus has done, then how can I not be humble? And not only in relation to God, but in relation to other people. The fact is, on my own, I don't deserve the love that God has shown me. I don't deserve his forgiveness. None of us do. I'm forgiven and I don't deserve it. So that positions me toward God I should be having gratitude, but then toward my neighbors, I should have nothing but compassion because we're the same. We're in the same boat. Should give us humility. But secondly, it should also give us freedom, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from a sense of needing to achieve success or praise everything that we have. All of our boast is in Jesus. And so that gives us space to rest to live in freedom. There's nothing left for me to achieve. It's already done. So I should be able to live in humility and freedom. Because of how the Bible story progresses, we should live and lead with hope. And what hope do we have for ourselves? What hope do we have for other spirit-filled Christians and communities? The humility and freedom that comes from having your sins forgiven. That's what we should be seeing. But here's another thing that we can hope for. That we would live with a sense of closeness and intimacy with God. God's desire, which we saw time and time again last week, is to know his people and to be known by us. As we see today, he intends to be near us, to listen to us. Now, we're not to the end game yet, where God will fill the whole earth when his presence will be 
unmediated to us, there will be a closeness and an intimacy we experience with God then that we don't have yet. But even now, God desires to cultivate a sense of relationship between him and us. How? Well, the primary means are through prayer, through reading the Bible, through having community with other Christian brothers and sisters. Through these simple means, we enjoy and interact with God, knowing him, knowing his love, knowing his wisdom. So we can hope, even now, for a sense of closeness with God and intimate knowledge of God through the body of Christ and through the means of grace. So because of how the Bible story progresses, we should live and lead with hope. We should hope not only for humility and freedom in our lives and in the lives of other Christians because our sins are forgiven, but we can also hope for a sense of closeness and intimacy with God. But last, we should hope to live in a way that reflects the character of Jesus so clearly that other people find it attractive. When God fills a person, when God fills a place, he transforms it. And why? To what ends? So that others would see something different and want to know what's going on there. What they've got seems to be better than what the rest of the world offers. Solomon saw that in the temple. The people in Jerusalem saw it on the day of Pentecost. And we should hope and we should expect that our lives, that the life of our church, and that the life of other Christians would be so glorious and beautiful and compelling that our neighbors would look at them and say, something's different about this person. And I want what they've got. I could camp out here and I could pontificate about how many Christians and Christian communities seem to have the absolute opposite effect. And as you look at your life, No doubt you can see ways that your life has not done that. And that's really the better thing. Rather than looking at other churches and other Christians, let's just look at ourselves. What about your life? What about your home? What about this church? Do we see the Holy Spirit restoring our lives to the way it should be? Not are we perfect, but do we see him showing up and doing something that is beautiful and glorious and that shows us something about his character and his intentions? Do we see the Holy Spirit shining with glory in our lives so that other peoples are curious and want something of what we've got? So I'm not telling you to beat yourself up where you fall short, but to hope differently. That's the whole point. To hope differently, to expect different things from ourselves and from this church and from other Christians and when appropriate, to confront one another and to call one another to live into this way of life. We are supposed to be the temple of God, the place where God dwells and that when people come to us, this is how they meet God. It's through us, Christians. It's through us, this church. It's through the church. Our lives should be inviting people to know God, to trust God, and to love him. So if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus is Lord, you have the capability to live this way, to impact and influence people in this way, to live and to love as Jesus, to shine with the glory of God in this world. And I invite you to hope that way. And to pursue that ends. So, how's your hope? 
Because of how the Bible story progresses, we should live and lead with hope. So consider what the temple showed Solomon about places where the Holy Spirit dwells. And consider what that should mean for yourself, for this church, and for any spirit-filled community. Spirit-filled people and communities should, should live in a state of humility and freedom that comes from having our sins forgiven. Spirit-filled people and communities should live with a sense of closeness and intimacy with God. And we should live in a way that so reflects the character of Jesus that it's attractive to those who don't yet know him. Are you hoping for that? Are you expecting that? Are you pursuing that? I encourage you to chew on these things and let them transform the way that you live, the way that you love, and the way that you challenge your Christian brothers and sisters to live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 1 Kings 8. It's uh, so much there. And we thank you for what it reveals about who you are and what you're doing. Lord, I pray that it will inform the way we think about ourselves individually and ourselves, Faith Presbyterian Church, and our denomination, the EPC. Lord, I pray also for the church throughout St. Tammany, Presbyterian or not. These people who with us have a common creed and a common boast in Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will do your work. This is your work. You show up and things happen. We ask you to transform us. Make us a humble people. Make us a people who recognize our, our only hope is Christ. That we'll find freedom in that. I pray that we would live differently, that we would live according to your ways, and that our lives would be beautiful to our neighbors, that they would join us in loving Christ and trusting him. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.